0: This is a Village Soundcast Network original production.
1: Hi and welcome to Lends Me Your Ears, the show that takes a look at new films in theaters or on streaming services and compares them to films from days gone by, either because of the genre or maybe a star or a director, or whatever suits our fancy really, because it's our show and we can do what we want. <laughs> My name is Stephen Cook and I'm a multimedia journalist with The Chronicle Herald and the Saltwire Network.
0: I'm Carsten Knox. I'm a film writer. I have a blog called Flaw on the
1: Iris You can find at halifaxbloggers.ca. And today we were inspired by the new Roland Emmerich Spectacle Moonfall to take a look at the history of the disaster movie. So hang on to your seats. This show is brought to you in *Sense Around.
0: So this genre, Stephen, that we're going to talk about today in our film show, film podcast, it's as old as Hollywood itself. And it's really... Uh, it's a genre that survived through many eras and i think i mean i'm i'm loath to want to psychoanalyze too much from my armchair why it is <laughs> oh, people love disaster movies but it does seem like we like watching terrible things happen to other people whether due to natural disasters technological failure or even bees taking revenge now we did not watch swarm which is uh an, what it was an early contender i think we talked about it as a possibility I, yeah
1: i it's, it's funny the swarm i mean i've seen the swarm and uh I yeah, guess, I, i've seen it
0: too i yeah. guess there's
1: a new blu-ray of it uh through warner archive that i would love to see because mm. tcm for years showed a terrible pen and scan tv copy of the swarm and they finally upgraded their copy so maybe i'll just watch it on tcm but uh, it, it is a film i'd like to revisit for its Amazing cast and for Michael Caine having one of the worst experiences of his career. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, it's. Um, I mean, we 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 gave it a pass. It's funny. I mean, I can't help but bring it up because it is so ridiculous. But I mean, that's the truth of a lot of these films. They yeah. are ridiculous. Um, but we we, we, we watched... could do a whole
1: show on B movies, <laughs> just oh, movies about bees. About bees. Okay. Yeah, I the, see. The that. next time a good. Movie about
0: bees comes along, then we'll we'll tackle this. All one. right, sounds good. Um, and we could watch. Oh, I, I've immediately thought about a bunch of bee movies. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> in, including the, the Wicker, deadly bees, the, yeah, Wicker, the Wicker Man, Man yeah. remake uh, or
1: in, in, the original. In, uh, no, I don't think Are bees play that big no. a part in the original. But no. uh, I, I would be down for the the Nicolas Cage version and and also um, uh, Invasion of the Bee Girls, ah. uh, which is is a good one. Uh, Wasp Woman.
0: I've never seen um, the Jerry Seinfeld B movie. I don't know if it's worth seeing.
1: It, it,
0: the animated film? It's okay. Yeah. Um, anyway, so we're not <laughs> talking about bees no. today. We are. We didn't see the swarm. We're not doing that. But we, we did watch movies about planets colliding, about planes falling out of the sky, about buildings burning, and about giant storms, and uh, about the moon turning out to be a massive space station. So let's start there with <laughs> Roland Emmerich's Moonfall, which is on Prime. It's directed by Emmerich, written by him and Harold Closser and Spencer Cohen. Now, love him or hate him, Emmerich has... That this German-born filmmaker has is the undisputed king of the disaster movie in the 21st century. He's had a lot of success, and he even predates the century with Independence Day, which I guess would be the most is his most popular film. I was never a huge fan. I always thought it was kind of so-so, but it does have those impressive blowing up the White House effects, which the studio could use in a trailer. And, and these movies sell themselves. I'm sure that's why studios make them because they they use special effects to, to to bring people in, uh, and then they forget that the a script is required. <laughs> yes. um, but, uh, but yeah, Emmerich was, of course, also responsible for Godzilla in 1998 and the film 2012. Uh, and we'll be talking about another one of his movies. But Moonfall is the most recent, and it has a reputation. It had a terrible Rotten Tomatoes score, and there's the awkward fact that this big-budget science fiction movie didn't even open in theaters in Canada. It just kind of missed the Canadian market altogether. Now you get to see it on Amazon, And here's the thing about the movie. Yes, it is bad in a dozen ways. Uh, I mentioned the script is terrible. There's some awful green screen and fake-looking exteriors, ridiculous pseudoscience, and tiresome daddy issues. But I did appreciate it had a kind of self-awareness about how bad it was. It's big and soapy. And uh, it is... Frequently, unintentionally, and intentionally hilarious. I, I laughed a lot at this movie, which I guess is its saving grace.
1: <laughs> yeah, I didn't regret watching it. It is not in any way, shape, or form a good movie uh, by any stretch of the imagination. But, uh, you know, every scene had something about it, some clunker of a piece of dialogue or, you know, just the, the Halle Berry trying to stare earnestly at know at somebody in amazement or, or whatever. The, 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 there was plenty happening in, in this film to keep me engaged, uh, as just, uh, piled on one ludicrous plot uh, turn after another.
0: Yeah, oh, I, I I agree absolutely and it's a the rough crux of the plot is that the moon is falling true to the title because it's a mega structure apparently invented and controlled by some extraterrestrial intelligence. So, disgraced astronaut Harper played by Patrick Wilson gets caught up in the chaos following the announcement of the moonfall which was predicted by noted conspiracy theorist K.C., played by John Bradley, who uh, Game of Thrones fans will recognize he was Sam on that show. Now, together with, you mentioned Halle Berry, she plays a current NASA astronaut, Fowler. They pull a couple of space shuttles out of mothballs in order to head up and figure out how to stop the moon from falling. (laughs) So, you know, it's dumb, but I mean... If you enjoyed, like, recently movies like Godzilla vs. Kong, I don't think there's anything dumber there than you've got here. I mean, there's fewer giant radioactive lizards and more bad CGI. But otherwise, it's, you know, it's just another wildly implausible fantasy that you can run with or, or not. Now, you mentioned terrible, ridiculous dialogue. The most <laughs> unlikely thing I think maybe ever spoken with a straight face in the movie is, okay, I'll try and do it justice, Sonny. The moon is going to help us. <laughs> that's a line in this movie. Uh, but, you know, so that's, that's, the,
1: that's what you're dealing with, basically. <laughs> I like tell your trigger-happy buddies to keep their finger off the nukes. <laughs> because, <laughs> because, of course, the government response is to, well, let's just blow up the damn thing. Right. And, uh, and no, there's got to be a better way. You know, it's, when, when your premise is based on a Mr. Show comedy sketch of blowing up the moon, you, you know you're in trouble.
0: This is not a movie that I will ever go back to watching again, but I think I watched it on a Saturday night. And and because it had been so, um, you know, roundly dismissed by critics and 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 sounded so ridiculous. I mean, even the trailer seemed ridiculous. I'm like, okay, I've got to – I was drawn to it in a kind of – you know, morbid fascination, I guess. Uh, and yeah, I mean, it wasn't, I, as I said, I laughed a lot. And so if, I, I guess it depends on what kind of, uh, of movie you're looking for and how much patience you have for the absurd. But uh, I mean, what did you make of the fact that there are so many scenes, like um, Patrick Wilson lives in this sort of apartment and every time he goes outside, he's definitely, even the exteriors are in a studio. Like it is so clear to me how much of this was shot in studio studio. And they don't even really try to pretend that he's actually outside. I mean stuff like that is oh, the, actually yeah, the because most of
1: the lighting is so clearly not exterior lighting.
0: Yeah. It's just I mean that stuff just seems to me like like why would you make that call? cuz it immediately took me out of the movie. I'm like, well, of course there's going to be a lot of things that take me out of the movie cuz it's ridiculous. <laughs> but but that was that seemed like a simple fix, like not an expensive fix, you know what I mean? Uh,
1: there's there's tons of stuff like that. Uh one of my favorite things in the whole movie is you know like at some point some of the characters are uh, they're trying to get to safety. I, I can't remember if they are just trying to get to an Air Force base or something, or get to that underground bunker in Colorado, and they're, they're kind of taking this trek through the mountains, which just on its own seems pretty implausible. And there's, they're standing there on a cliff or whatever, a majestic fake digital mountainscape in front of them. And this giant meteor, like some chunk of the moon, I guess, or some space junk or something, because, of course, gravity is pulling all this stuff in and, and so on. Gravity's gone crazy. Um, this gigantic meteor hits the, the the mountain peak immediately opposite them, and it explodes in this massive fireball. And, and uh, you know, probably the most, you know, if you saw that in real life, it'd be probably the most incredible thing you'd ever seen in your life. And they just kind of stand there and go, well, we better get going. <laughs> like, no, like they see, they see this amazing spectacle in front of them, and it doesn't even register. It's just mm-hmm. like, whatever. Yeah, <laughs> just, yeah. Uh, there, there really is no accounting for kind of any realistic human experience at any point uh, in this movie. Really, you know, everybody just takes stuff as it comes and, and kind of follows the plot line. And um, you know, the conspiracy theory guy, who I guess was, I, I think it was supposed to be Josh Gad is originally. That right? I think so. I, I, he wasn't. John Bradley wasn't the original. Uh, I mean, John Bradley is actually pretty good in the role. He, like, he is. He, he yeah. deli- he's he's actually fairly engaging and and brings some comic relief and and he's not Josh Gad. Uh, but I think right, I mean, so I, you're not you're not a fan of Josh Gad. Not, I'm not a big fan, and uh, I think he, I think he had some commit some stage commitment or something because production got delayed. And of course, as all productions have over the past couple of years, uh, but you know, at some point he's, he's like, what would Elon Musk do? You know, kind of <laughs> like, that's, like, that's his idol, which, is that, right. which doesn't play terribly well uh, now that the film's come out at this particular time. But it, it did uh, give me a chuckle, that's for sure. Yeah,
0: yeah. And then there's other I mean, this is something that we, I don't think this will be any kind of surprise to anyone listening who knows anything about disaster movies. But they do tend to the ensemble cast, right? They're, they're, and, and much often to their detriment because there's never enough time really to get to know someone in particular. Uh, and, and I think when there's such a sprawling cast, you you just kind of. Pair, you know you play witness to their their the terrible things that happened to them but this is also the case there is a large cast here um you get supporting roles for Michael Pena who's a great actor a lot of fun uh, Charlie Plummer and even Donald Sutherland who yes. shows up for a scene to rattle off some one nonsense scene, yeah and then vanish right he never shows up again I'm like wow so so what was why did you need Donald mm-hmm. Sutherland for this one scene
1: and was he playing the same character that he played in JFK yeah <laughs> Basically Mr. Exposition. Yeah. Or Mr. X. Yes. <laughs> yeah, X it, is short for be. exposition. It could be.
0: Uh you know, it's um Yeah, so I don't know if I'd even recommend it. Obviously, you know, we're giving our our statements here as uh, as having lived through Moonfall. Um I mean I think it's I I found it about as bad as Independence Day. So those of people out, out there who loved Independence Day, then they're gonna probably be like, How dare you? But uh I, I thought I thought it was as bad as that, but not
1: as jingoistic. So in some ways no. I would recommend Moonfall before Independence yeah, Day. Yeah, it's a little more critical of the government than <laughs> Independence Day. But yeah. but it you know, it just You know, it's just fun ticking off all the clunker lines of dialogue, you know, like where the the general in the bunker goes, My wife is my ex wife is up there and I think she can help us. You know, (laughs) like the moon is, uh, you know, the moon isn't going to crash into the earth. My ex wife is taking care of it. Don't worry. Uh, and uh, one of my, you know, and they, there's more than one use of the line, you know, it's it's better to ask forgiveness than or beg for forgiveness than ask for permission, which is just like one of those. It's just one of those lines that you should never put in a screenplay, like with the heart wants what the heart wants. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. Yes, it yes. <laughs> it just should go in the, the bad line Hall of Fame, mm-hmm. uh, and, and maybe it will after Moonfall. Um, you know, the worst thing I'd say about Moonfall is it's just so,
0: so long. It's about an hour and 45 minutes, and I... Uh, or more than that. It's oh, yes. over two hours. Yes. But, it's like two hours and 15 minutes. But I, I think the at the hour 45 mark, I started to wonder whether we actually were all doomed. Um, but uh, it does set up kind of a sequel, weirdly. I mean, the stuff that actually happens on the moon is actually kind of weirdly fascinating from a sci-fi kind of point. They spent all their money on sets up there, I guess. <laughs> you know, because clearly they actually went to the moon. Um, but... Uh, but, yeah, the, I, I, I tried to wonder about what the sequel to Moonfall might be called. Moonfall
1: 2, a lunatic boogaloo? Maybe. <laughs> but I, I think Roland Emmerich has had this obsession with the moon because his, one of his earliest films, probably his first kind of international, I won't say hit because I think it was kind of a direct-to-video kind of title, but it was called Moon 44. Oh, yeah, I remember that. Just sure. basically the dirty dozen in space. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not on our moon. It's on a moon. Uh, you know, a different moon, whether I don't know if they're trying to fight space bandits or whatever, but that's basically the gist of it. It's just let's set the dirty dozen in space and see what happens. And, you know, now I'm really curious to see it uh, after having watched this one.
0: Yeah. I think I have seen it and I don't think it was good, but uh, yeah, he's not one of my favorite a filmmaker, so a lot of his movies have come out, and I've completely missed them. Uh, I had missed The Day After Tomorrow, which uh, one a, a colleague of mine actually said was very much worth seeing. So I was like, okay, after Moonfall, I'll, I'll give it a try. And it's uh, it's from 2004 on Disney now, it starts with some god-awful CGI, so that's a commonality, um, a camera flying over an obviously fake ice shelf, uh, where climate researchers, <laughs> including Dennis Quaid, playing a guy named Jack Hall, witnessed the ice shelf break. And then we're in New Delhi where there's a snowstorm, and Ian Holm plays a character, Professor Rapson, who is an oceanographer who befriends Jack, and they bond over extreme weather concerns. Now, Jack's foreca- forecast model imagines climate change bringing on a new ice age due to polar cap melting and freshwater entering and desalinating the oceans or some such. And the science and stuff is always sort of weirdly pseudo, and you just got to go with it, whether it's, I mean, I don't. Uh, Clearly, you know, this was made almost 20 years ago. And- and it has some genuine climate change anxiety stuff going on it, which I think is actually a—it's to its credit. But uh, whether or not any of this actually makes any kind of sense, I don't know.
1: Well, certainly a little more grounded in – Science and Moonfall. Yes,
0: that's right. Yeah, slightly more. Um, And and Jack's teenage son, Sam, played by a very young Jake Gyllenhaal. He's a genius, but he's not, you know, he's got trouble at school. He's also crushing on his classmate, played by Emmy Rossum. Um, And uh, Jack's, you know, Jack's an absentee father, so they've got father-son issues. Uh, And so Sam is in New York on a field trip, and that's when the terrible weather arrives. And It took me a while to figure out where Jack was. I guess he's in Washington. Yeah,
1: he had to head north. To get to, to New York, yeah. So DC. there's
0: there's like you know the those cities are like three hours apart by train. So it's it's a bit of a trek, and uh, so that's where a lot of the 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 you know stuff happens within the film. It's like this this once in a in a millennia, a storm sets down and it's got, it's got, it's very cold and very wintry and it's the start of this new ice age and these, these family members are separated and they're trying to get together. And, and so, you know, uh, there's that. And then there's of course the ensemble. So, uh, so there's Jack's teams of scientists, Jack Dash Mihawk and J.O. Sanders. There's Tamlin Tamita as a, Na- as a NASA scientist. There's a Perry King as a Bush-like president and Kenneth Welsh as a Dick Cheney-like VP. And then when Mimi Kuzik and Sheila McCarthy show up, I'm like, oh, clearly this was shot in Canada.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the presence of Sheila McCarthy and Kenneth Welsh make it pretty pretty
0: obvious. Pretty clear. Apparently, I I mean, Wikipedia is supposed to be believed, um, or is to be believed, this was the biggest Hollywood movie in terms of box office success ever shot in Canada in 2004. I don't know if that's changed since then. Uh, Well,
1: Titanic was... Shot well, here, that's but.
0: true. Yeah, yeah. And that was a much bigger hit. And I mean, X-Men was shot here. I, I don't know. Anyway, maybe Wikipedia has got uh, its facts mixed up. Uh, we did enjoy that Nova Scotia is name checked in this um, uh, film, uh, where a storm surge of 25 feet hits the coast. Uh, and uh, yeah, and then we get a shot which actually I thought the CGI was pretty great here, that basically a duplicate of a shot that we see in a film that we'll talk about later called Deluge, which was made in 1933. Uh, (laughs) So this tells you how long these kinds of disaster movies have been working the same material. A tsunami comes into New York around the Statue of Liberty uh, and the flooding of Manhattan. All of that is pretty impressive, I thought.
1: Yeah, it it does look better and it's more coherent and it's and, and one thing I noticed about Moonfall, Moonfall is really badly edited. It has, Mm -hmm. every scene has a weird pacing to it. Like it was probably farmed out to multiple production houses or something like that. It has that kind of disjointed feel. Whereas this actually feels like a coherent storyline, at least it it doesn't have quite as many moving parts as Moonfall. So, you know, there's there's two or three kind of different storylines that are intercut pretty well, um, compared to Moonfall's kind of throw everything up in the air and see where it lands Uh approach to editing. Um, and, and yeah, the special effects are a lot better. There, there weren't too many you know, moments where, uh, I, I just thought that looks kind of ropey and maybe they're a lot better at kind of masking. Everything in Moonfall looks digital. It just has a yeah. digitally crisp, hard look to it. And it in, in, um, you know, obviously they, they put more money into the effects in the, even though it's an older film by, you know, about 17 years at this point, um, you know, they, uh, the day after tomorrow special effects, you know, they look like they're on film. Like they there's, there's, they know how to kind of make things look gauzy and, you know cloud them in smoke or do whatever it takes to disguise the fact that they're computer generated i guess uh uh and you know that's that's a whole other level that just was not added to moonfall it seems and and it's it's you know like all the tornadoes destroying los angeles uh, i thought you know looks you know about as good as the tornadoes in twister i guess you know like when the tornado takes out the hollywood sign and all that kind of stuff it, uh-huh. it, it looks you know, reasonable. Maybe, maybe on a big screen in a theater, it, it'd be different, but certainly on my monitor at home, it looked fine.
0: Yeah, yeah, I thought it did too, and uh, and I also like that there were real human moments here with the characters, like uh, you know, there's uh, and there and some some social political jabs, like when the Americans are trying to get into Mexico. At one point, it's like this massive exodus of northern states into the south, and some of them are trying to get across the border, and and then the news basically says that. Some some of that can happen due to the forgiveness of Latin American debt. I mean, that I, I appreciated that. It's like, oh, OK, so we're going to have some things to say about uh, real world politics. Uh, and and uh, but, you know, there's also a whole lot of stupidity. Like there's a scene where characters are trying to get across the icy wastes and uh, and they're walking they're crawling across glass, which turns out to be a buried mall and the grass, the glass breaks, someone falls through the broken glass. And the other fellow who's basically trying to pull him up, takes off his gloves to try to get a better grip, <laughs> yes. just so you can see the blood in his hands. And I'm like, really in the middle of a blizzard that is supposed to be the coldest blizzard ever. I, I just, ugh, that was awful. And then there yes, are the, well. the, the bad CGI wolves.
1: Yes. That, that is the one I actually have ropey looking wolves in my notes here. <laughs> yes. Um, when they're on it, you know, it's it's actually, you know, it's it's a good sequence. It could have been better if the wolves didn't look like they were just kind of floating in air uh, rather than looking like actual grounded animals.
0: But. Yeah, but again, you know, one of the things, along with comedy, one of the things that ages the most poorly is special effects. It's rare to see, see it work that well, yeah. uh, which is probably why we hold movies like Blade Runner up to such a standard because it still looks good. Um, anyway, yeah. And, and
1: I, I did like the fact that we have... Uh, you know, we have Jake Gyllenhaal's character outrunning the cold, which is right. a nice, I don't know if it's on purpose, but it's like an inverse of the whole outrunning an explosion, uh, cliche, uh, where people can outrun a massive fireball as it hurdles up an air duct or whatever, you know, like, which we've seen time and time again, but actually outrunning a wave of cold is a, uh, it was a new one on me at least. So at least that, you know, that was an original touch uh, that I appreciated. Yeah, yeah, me too. I did too. <laughs> and welcome back to Lends Me Your Ears. And today we are looking at disaster movies. Now, we were inspired by the recent release of Moonfall, which is one of the latest, well, we'll call it All Star, but certainly splashy, big budget special effects, uh, destroy the earth kind of films. And it went straight to Amazon. It didn't make it into theaters in, uh, not in this country anyway, I guess overseas it did play in theaters. But uh, here it went right to streaming and uh, deservedly so, I think. And If streaming had been around for some of the films we're going to be talking about shortly, maybe those would have suffered the same fate. But the whole idea of destroying the world or civilization or whatever in in a film or a community, really, it is, as Carson said uh, at the top of the show, it is really as old as movies themselves. People loved watching this kind of stuff unfold on, uh, on a big screen and you know it goes back to the silent days for sure. I mean I've, I've seen the Johnstown flood um, which is based on a real incident that happened in uh, Johnstown, I believe uh, Johnstown, New York I think uh, where a, f- a dam burst and a uh, whole town was wiped out and uh, I've seen the film. It's actually pretty well done, the model work and uh, the special effects in that film were among the best of its day in the silent days. There's also a silent version of Noah's Ark, which uh, staged the flood very realistically. So realistically that uh, famously, some of the extras were drowned when they flooded the, the set. Uh, one of the sadder stories in Hollywood um, and got Michael Curtiz, the director, a, a reputation as being rather cruel and um, inhumane in his treatment of of actors, uh, even though he was you know, certainly one of the most successful Hollywood directors making things like Casablanca and uh, many Errol Flynn movies later on but this was sort of earlier in his Hollywood career and uh you know once the sound era came in uh, we st- started to see things like King Kong and um you know uh the, the Last Days of Pompeii which is uh, from the makers of King Kong oddly enough you know very big spectacular films with lots of very well done model work and uh very state-of-the-art stuff for the, the 1930s. But the film we chose is one called Deluge, which most people probably haven't heard of. It doesn't have any big stars in it. It was an independent production put out by RKO. And uh, it uh, was for many years a lost film. The The only known print was a copy uh, that was dubbed in Italian, a beat-up 16-millimeter print that was uh, shown on Italian TV for years and years. And then finally, uh, a much better a uh, copy was discovered in a vault in France in a, in a film archive there. And that's what we have now. It's uh, it's uh, released by Kino Lorber on Blu-ray, but it's also on YouTube. And basically it shows, it just starts off with a bang. It starts off with the destruction of the world thanks to uh, giant storms and earthquakes uh, happening all over the world. And humanity is, is basically reduced to living on these kind of islands that are left over once the, the world is flooded. It's um It's based on a novel directed by Felix E. Feist. Uh, who uh, was kind of a sort of a B-movie director at that time. And it's – it's the special effects are great. It, you know, the model work, you get to see the Empire State Building taken out. Uh, you know, I mean, obviously some of the shots are are very obviously models, but it, you can tell a lot of care and detail went into them and you, you kind of have to appreciate those for what they are. And then the, after the, about the first half hour, after we get the kind of the whole wholesale destruction of, uh, of human civilization, then we get the story about uh, – you know, communities trying to survive in the wake of such destruction. You've got kind of the group of bad guys out just to get what they want for themselves. And then you've got the the people who are trying to rebuild a society, you know, based on uh, the principles of, of democracy and so on. And, and it builds to a climax uh, in the, uh, the big showdown between these two groups. And I, I've got to say it's pretty – I feel like it's pretty advanced in its ideas for a film from the early 30s. And uh, despite the fact that it doesn't have a lot of sort of upper echelon actors, uh, it's it's still a pretty good film for its time.
0: Yeah, I uh, I was impressed by this. Uh, you know. Uh, uh an almost like a 90-year-old movie on YouTube. I did not have a huge expectation, either for the way it looked or the way the story was told, necessarily. But it's really something. And uh, I love the opening crawl, which is basically, this is it. Deluge is a tale of fantasy, (laughs) an adventure in speculation, a vivid epic pictorialization of an author's imaginative flight. We, the producers, present it now, purely for your entertainment like that to me was just (laughs) awesome I love that and and I loved how you know it's the first few minutes are just you know mostly men I think all men reporting on the radio reading the teletype about disasters earthquakes typhoons and then interspersed with some fairly obvious miniatures and stock footage of hurricanes with a lot of dramatic music and people saying there is no escape um, but yeah, like I mentioned, that uh, that scene from um, the, the day after tomorrow. This is where you know basically we get the same shot of the the the, the tsunami coming into New York and surrounding the Statue of Liberty. Um, and yeah, and it's and there's some stuff. It's pretty unnerving. People being crushed by buildings. Um, you know, and and uh, and then we get the survivors. The young woman played by Peggy Shannon, who holds up with the, in the shack with two men who basically fight over her, and she swims away eventually discovered by the man who lost his wife and two kids in the storm and how any of these people survived is a little unclear but anyway the burlier of the two original men played by Fred Kohler chases after the woman to find her with the widower and he clubs her and steals her off and then the (laughs) widower steals her back so there's all this like you know kind of this idea of like after civilization is done, men and women will revert to some kind of gender archetypes, which is, you know, kind of ridiculous. But you know, that's kind of what they're playing with there. It's like, what would it really be like if if <laughs> we all had no excuse
1: anymore? Yeah, we just become cavemen.
0: Yeah, basically, basically. basically, yeah. So I have some issues with some of that, but I I did feel like the characterization, despite the it's all a little reductive, but but uh, the characterizations, the acting, the performances is all pretty great, and and I like the um, the Sets and, and locations where they shot So it's it's definitely If you're a fan of disaster movies There's no
1: reason not to check it out and You gotta say They go from the destruction of the world To the rebuilding of society In 70 minutes So it's 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 You know Roland Emmerich could have learned A little something from A tight story construction From watching this Because the fact They cram so much into 70 minutes So it's obviously not going to be A big drain on your time But it is a fascinating movie And uh, 90 years later There is a certain camp element To some parts of the film but uh you know it certainly held my interest and and, because really i had no idea where this film was going to go from one moment to the next and and that was a that was a real treat as well
0: yeah for sure now we should talk about when worlds collide this is a movie that i read the book when i was a kid and i was always fascinated by it and uh and it's from 1951, and I was, it's nice to finally see the film version. Directed by Rudolf Maté, I think is the pronunciation there. Yeah. Uh, the book was written by Edwin Balmer and Philip Wiley, and uh, it starts with a biblical passage about the destruction of the earth. And we get this playboy pilot played by Richard Durr. His name is David Randall who's asked to transport a mysterious box from an observatory in South Africa to the United States. There's a tabloid newspaper that offers him a grand sum of $7,500 for what's in the box. And he doesn't know what's in the box, but he's met there by Joyce, played by Barbara Rush, a scientist and an analyst, and she's engaged to a doctor who you know won't be able to keep her from being attracted to the roguish pilot, And once, especially once the world is ending, so, you know, he starts using cash to light his and her cigarettes. <laughs> That's a fun <laughs> scene. Um anyway, the box's data has uh has basically the the news that uh the A planet and a sun or a star are flying towards Earth. It's going to destroy the planet. So the scientists take their case to the United Nations. There's a moment when this looks like it's just going to be Don't Look Up, which is another recent disaster movie, very controversial, and I actually thought a great, fun movie, uh, Don't Look Up, I really enjoyed. But this has a lot of those same plot points. So yeah, um and they they hatch a plan that the um, a small group of humans will fly to this planet, this other planet and settle there because it has the hope is it has uh the conditions that will work. And uh, even if Earth gets destroyed, at least humanity will be able to start again. And so, yes, an investor named Stanton with deep pockets give them the money to build a rocket. And then we get a series of scenes like the planning stage for an interstellar Noah's Ark. There's a lot of talk about God and praying and the religious impact of this astronomical phenomenon. (laughs) Uh, And a lot of miniatures, burning forests, volcanoes, earthquakes, New York flooding again. And some of that's pretty impressive. And I think the color, Technicolor, really helps. Yeah, and so there's some stuff that doesn't really make a lot of sense, as with a lot of these movies. You know, I figured about halfway into the film, we'd already be on our way to space. But it turns out that Doctor who I mentioned is also a helicopter pilot, and he helps bring food to survivors of massive quakes. Of course, he teams up with the roguish pilot that we also mentioned – and uh, none of that makes any sense, uh, nor how they are going to select who will go on this trip. I mean, if you think about genetic diversity, might be an important factor. I'm not really seeing that with all these white people. Uh, no. Anyway, but, you know, this is 1951, after all. Anyway, so, so then you've got uh, some little plot issues with some of the characters. And uh, the scorned doctor, of course, ends up being awfully easygoing about everything that's going on. Um, and then there's this sort of couple which we never really get to know, the square jawed young man is is gets on the list to go to this new planet, but his his girlfriend isn't. Uh, somehow somehow things work out for them. Yeah, there's a lot of things I wondered about. Like, for instance, at the point that they're about to go into space, they get into their gear and they're like giant burlap hoodies. Um <laughs> uh, but yeah, not a you, helmet in sight. Yeah, <laughs> no, exactly. What what did you make of all of this, Stephen?
1: I I like it as as a kind of a more reasoned science fiction film from the early 50s. Obviously, yeah, the the whiteness of it is is a problem, and and uh, you know some of the the gender politics. I mean, our, our hero uh, David Randall Dare plays him. as kind of a like a Danny Kaye-esque scamp. <laughs> he's a bit of a rogue. You know, he's always ready with a quip, and and he's got an eye for the ladies and all that kind of stuff. And you know, it's it it's it has that kind of faded feel about it, but but uh, George Powell was a master of these kinds of films at the time. He's kind of the Roland Emmerich of his day, I suppose, because, you know, before this he made Destination Moon, and immediately after this he made a terrific Paramount version of War of the Worlds, you know, which is was set in modern day instead of in sort of Victorian England as in the H.G. Wells novel. And, and uh, you know, he he had a real flair for these films and making them colorful and making, the effects and the models and everything look good. I mean, he he started out as a stop motion animator, so he knew a thing or two about models and miniatures and all that kind of thing. And I think it really pays off in in the, the effects films that he made. He didn't direct this, as you noticed, as you noted, uh, Rudolph Mate did. And and uh, he would go on to make the the Time Machine, which is a which is a terrific sci fi film again based on H G Wells. And you know, I, I enjoyed it. For what it is, it is interesting to see it so soon after Don't Look Up because so much of this film feels like a template uh-huh. for that. You know, just insert jokes here. And the finale when they, they you know, spoiler alert, they, they do make it to another planet. And uh, it, the scenes at the end of Don't Look Up uh, where they arrive on another planet are look to be like almost like a carbon copy. You know, just the, the colors of the planet and the, the look of the mats, the background mats and all that kind of stuff seem to be... Directly inspired by when world's collide, so that would be an interesting double feature of these two films but I, but i I do think it has a lot of charm and a lot more thought going into it than maybe some of the other sci fi uh outer space epics of the time
0: yeah, yeah, and i think I think you're right, and that oh my gosh, that terrible matte painting that they have at the end of uh of of when world's collide there's no excuse for that it looks looks awful
1: <laughs> well it does, and it wasn't uh it wasn't the producer's fault they were working on a miniature. Uh, model to kind of insert there as a double exposure or what have you and Paramount just said nope we're done with this film we're releasing it and it's because it looks like a man-made structure in the background and they were just basically reusing a mat from somewhere else I guess Wow, uh, just as a placeholder until they finished uh, the miniature they were going to use and then Paramount shut it down saying nope we spent enough money on this and it's time to release it so uh, Uh yeah it's one of the major flaws of the film for sure Um,
0: let's move on to the 1970s that were dominated by disaster movies in some way this is the golden era of disaster movies. They had so many different kinds. I mean, one of the first movies I ever saw was The Poseidon Adventure, which we're not talking about specifically here, but that made a big impression on me. Um, no, we're, we're going to start here with uh, 1970s Airport, played on, uh, based on the 1968 novel by Arthur Haley, Apparently, it was the biggest box office hit of Universal Studios history at the time, which I don't make a head scratcher for me because I didn't think it was very good. Bert Lancaster is Bakersfield. He manages Lincoln Airport somewhere in the Midwest. He's seeing 10 inches of snow over the past 24 hours, which you'd think would be enough to shut down the airport and, and cancel flights. So, I mean, that's what they would do now. But uh, and a plane has just gone off the runway. But uh, he doesn't want to shut down the airport. He's getting grief from his wife for not being home enough and from the community for airplane noise around the airport. He's the ostensible hero, but he's incredibly sexist and obnoxious. And he fights to keep the airport open because he's got, he says, the pilots in mind. And damn the politicians or anyone else who gets in his way. And I just, I just, I just don't understand his, his thinking. Anyway, um, mm-hmm. and then he... Um, He says he's staying in his relationship for the kids, but he's having kind of an emotional affair with another airport worker played by Gene Seberg. Of course, Lancaster was 56 at the time. Seberg was 31. So that's something you see over and over again with these movies, a much older male star and a much younger female star. Um, Now, one of the airport's most obnoxious pilots, Damaris, (laughs) played by Dean Martin. He's about to fly to Rome. He's written a report complaining about the conditions in the airport. So that puts him at odds with uh, Burt Lancaster's Character. In the meantime, he's romancing a flight attendant played by Jacqueline Bessette. So Martin was 52 when this was made and Bissett was around 25. I mean, it's just like, come on. Uh, anyway, it's, you know, there's no surprise in the soapy plot or the fact that women are basically trapped by their love for unfaithful men. Uh, so there's lots of cliches. I thought Maureen Stapleton gave a decent performance with her brief screen time, and George Kennedy is always good. He's and he's like, a,
1: he's the highlight of the film for yeah, me. For yeah,
0: yeah. Sure. He's he's always in these movies. Um, but uh, and oh, and Helen Hayes apparently won an Academy Award for uh, in supporting actor actress for Mrs. Quonset, who's a kindly old lady who's figured out pretty sweet scam how she becomes a regular stowaway on cross continent flights to see her daughter. She's hilarious. Uh, and I did like the scale. This isn't a low-budget affair. The airport concourse scenes, the plane interiors, all the sets are amazing. And I and there's a lot of split screen and inserts, um, but it feels like a relic. It, I mean, it must have feel like a relic even in 1970, but they made a ton of sequels.
1: Yeah, well, the, the, the soap opera stuff is really cranked up here. Uh, it, it's based on the Arthur Haley novel, and before this, he wrote Hotel, which was basically the same structure. It's set in a hotel and there's multiple storylines involving multiple characters, you know, affairs and scams and all that kind of thing. And, And basically they just took the same formula and adapted it to an airport, except what they did was they inserted this whole subplot about a bomber, uh, played by Van Heflin, uh, you know, who's, who's basically, he wants to kill himself so his wife can have the insurance and, uh, which is based on a real thing that actually did happen. And of course, once they figured out that, it was a suicide by bomb, uh the, the insurance was void anyway. So it was a kind of a a useless uh endeavor and, and 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 tragic as well. And and in this case um the same thing happens. Except in this case the, you know we don't lose the entire uh passenger list in the process. But uh the, the soap opera aspect of it gets shunted down in in favor of dealing with the disaster at hand in the later sequels. Cause there, there's, there's four airport movies, I think cause there's, cause there's
0: 75, And then there's the concord 79, 79, you know, 79, Yeah. Jimmy
1: yeah. Stewart with them. You know, everyone has an all-star cast. It's basically the love boat in the air. And, um, and, and of course the, the disasters get more and more improbable as we go along. And every time George Kennedy is there to to help figure out how they're going to land that plane or, you know, clear that runway or whatever it is, that, cause he's just, he's just going to chomp down on a cigar and get things done. And, and, uh, to the point where he, you know, he winds up in, well, definitely in police squad and then the naked gun movies because of his connection to that, uh, that kind of past. But, uh. He certainly does it with plum. Like when he talks about what a bomb will do to the side of that plane uh, in the middle of the air, he's very excited about it, even though he's talking about something that could potentially kill everybody on board Uh, and his enthusiasm for airplanes and, you know. This baby was built better than it needed to be, kind of thing, you know. Thanks, Mister Boeing. Uh, th- that part of it is is pretty irresistible, but the, the soap opera relationship stuff is uh, it, it just dates it so horribly.
0: Yeah, yeah, and of course the fact that Airplane, the, the Zucker brothers' uh, hit from the '80s, pretty much put an end to these movies. And it, I think, in some ways, Airplane is better remembered just generally, than any of these movies. I feel like the airport movies have kind of vanished from from the culture in a way that they just don't make them like this anymore. But um, one movie I, we watched that I did like a lot more was The Towering Inferno. It's held up quite well. From 1974, directed by John Gillerman, produced by Irwin Allen, of course, who's the big name for disaster movies of the 70s, and uh, who directed some of the action sequences. Uh, interestingly, the film is an adaptation uh, of, of, of a book by um, – two novels, The Tower and a book called The Glass Inferno. So I don't know if I've ever actually seen a movie that adapts two separate novels like that.
1: Well, what I think happened was that Warner Brothers had the rights to one novel and 20th Century Fox had the rights to the other. And they were so similar, they knew they couldn't go ahead with production because there would be – there. You know there could be like potential lawsuits over the similarity of the two films, so they actually joined forces and Sterling Silliphant wrote a screenplay, essentially combining the two novels into one film, and it and then it was a co-production, and then one studio shared the North American rights and the other one had the international rights to the film, and and it was so expensive that it probably required that kind of, uh, muscle behind it to get it made anyway, because they did put a lot of money into special effects and constructing sets and, and all that kind of stuff.
0: Yeah. And it's, um, it's really something. It looks great on Blu-ray, which we watched, uh, and, uh, it's hard to believe this is a 50 year old film in some ways. Now, Paul Newman is Doug. He's the architect who builds the tallest building in the world in San Francisco. It's a real multi-use Marvel of engineering. Faye Dunaway is Doug's fiancé. Uh, she's a magazine editor. William Holden is in it as the developer. Richard Chamberlain, who looks a little uncomfortable, is supposed to play, be playing a rogue. And ladies' man, he's a son-in-law of the developer who have may, may have cut corners in the building's electrical systems and pocketed the extras. And wouldn't you know it, when they switch on all the bu- the building's lights for the big dedication ceremony, there's a trouble. There's a fire. And amongst the none more starry cast, Fred Astaire is a con man. We even get to see him dance a little bit, which is nice. (laughs) Robert Wagner, O.J. Simpson, Robert Vaughn, and Susan Blakely. And about 45 minutes into the movie, Steve McQueen shows up as a fire chief. And uh, it's it's fun seeing Newman and McQueen try to outcapable each other. I mean, they're cut from the same square-jawed American leading man cloth, and they just kind of, like, grit their teeth and have to work together, even though they're kind of... Well, McQueen is quite critical of Newman's character. Um, yeah, I mean, it's uh, there's a lot of anxiety. I thought the the fire and the and the the claustrophobia uh, there's it's it's it still holds up. It's this is still very frightening stuff, and uh, I love the scene where McQueen says the to the firefighters they'll have to rap, rappel down the elevator shaft. One of his young colleagues says. I'll fall. I know I'll fall. And the queen says, okay, you go first. That way, if you fall, you won't take any of us <laughs> with you. And he delivers that line. So matter of fact, it's a total classic.
1: Yeah. It's that same fireman keeps wind, like he keeps showing trepidation and fear throughout the, and he keeps winding up in the most dangerous situations, despite his attempts to like kind of avoid the troublesome. That that's one of my weird little threads that I may not have picked up on, uh, when I watched it before that this, this one fireman keeps winding up in these situations. And, uh, yeah, there's a, there's a lot to like in this film. Again, a great cast. And, uh, I think it's got a lot more humor in it than, than airport, for example. I mean, obviously airport has got the, the, the Mrs. Quonset character for a lot of the comic relief here. There's a lot more pithy dialogue scattered throughout the film. Sterling Siliphant, uh, certainly a, a very good screenwriter wrote, um, I think in the heat of the night was, uh, one of his, uh, his big claims to fame. And uh, you know it, it, there's, there's a lot more fun To be had in this film Even though it, it does It is quite a long film It does take a while To, to get to its big Flaming finale But uh, and, and, and McQueen looks like He'd rather be anywhere else Than on the set of this film But at least Newman Is, is, is a pro And, and is, is fairly convincing here
0: Hi I'm Lindsay Cameron Wilson Host of The Food Podcast
1: But you know what It's not just about food It's about people and their stories shared through the lens of food. The Food Podcast has been described as an audible fairy tale. How about that? You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher. So come join us. We would love to share our stories with you.
0: All right, so in this final segment of Lends Me Your Ears for our look at uh, disaster movies, we're going to talk about another film. Just like Towering Inferno, that released in 1974, directed by Mark Robson, written by Mario Puzo and George Fox, and that's Earthquake. Uh, it's Los Angeles, and we're into the lives of Los Angelinos. Chuck Heston is an engineer with a a, a suicidal wife, played by Ava Gardner. Now he's miserable, but he's you know clearly fond of a younger woman once again that old trope uh Genevieve Bujold's single actor she's a single a single mom actor uh once again you know that that whole thing it's the same nonsense so then you've got George Kennedy who is always welcome as Slade a cop with a grudge against violent hippies and the and and the rules of course <laughs> you know um So, uh, those hippies give the kid from grocery store trouble too, but he's a soldier. And when, when, uh, he, you know, the trouble starts, the earthquake starts, he goes out and he gets his revenge later on. Richard Roundtree is a stunt motorcycle rider. Lauren Green, who works with Heston in his office, uh, Victoria Principal with huge hair and even Walter Matthau, who is got this strange cameo as a drunk in, the in the bar, um, and you know, there's the guys who work at a local dam where someone has drowned in an elevator shaft, very mysterious. And Kip Niven is the grad student, a seismologist who predicts the big one is coming. And uh, yeah, when the big one arrives, it's reasonably impressive, effects wise. Uh, I I I don't, you know, it's so weird though. I mean, this the politics of this movie, and I guess many of these movies is so conservative. Um, there's, uh, it's like. Uh, it's so weird to see Matt out is a sort of light comic relief is after segments where people are being flung to their deaths out of skyscraper windows. The tone of this is all over the place. <laughs> uh, you know, and it's nice to see Ava Gardner and Ch- Charlton Heston working together in their scenes together. But, but, you know, once again, it's like, the men are are sort of put upon, and they they're trying to devote themselves to their work. But the women uh, and the women around them, their 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 wives usually are are uh, you know just give them trouble, and they're upset, and they're this chaotic factor in their lives. And and it's it's really strange how many of these stories feature these men looking for respite for yo- from younger women, and it doesn't actually turn out all that well for Chuck Heston in this movie. A spoiler alert, but. Uh, but things don't go well for him in the end. But I gather it's because, you know, he was like, funnily enough, was like, I don't think that, that uh, my character should should leave his wife, even if she is, uh, is you know, if she is a, a, a problem <laughs> for him. Uh, and so anyway, I, I won't spoil it entirely, but. The, there's for for a movie that's almost 50 years old but there is a um there, there's kind of interesting twist here that uh that things don't work out the way that say they worked out in airport
1: yeah it's again from the same studio as airport it's not an irwin allen film even though it gets lumped in with towering inferno beside adventure and all those and it does you know continue the so- soap opera nature of airport uh it just seems to be a universal thing i guess and it uh it's it's diff- it's not a great movie i i feel like it's less than the sum of its parts i remember kind of the excitement about when it came out and the sense around uh uh process that it was released in where they just cranked up these massive subwoofers to make the building shake during the earthquake scenes, which they now replicate on DVD because they send a really – if you have a subwoofer, it sends a really powerful signal to your subwoofer uh, to, to kind of rattle the furniture a little bit. Um, but it's, it, it feels so less than the sum of its parts. I like – elements of this film, knowing that they don't all quite hold together. I think some of the special effects are terrific. Some of them are appallingly shoddy. Uh, It it just runs the gamut uh, that way. And uh, just some of the character moments are more outlandish than others. Marjo Gortner is kind of a an outsider nerd guy who also happens to be an army reservist. Oh yeah.
0: That's the kid who I
1: mentioned who was in the grocery store. Yeah, exactly. And then he, you know, then he kind of goes berserk later in the film. Like that's, he might be my favorite thing in the whole movie, uh, especially, and then we get, uh, on the Blu-ray, you get some deleted scenes where he turns out to be even creepier than he is in the finished cut. There's scenes of him basically stalking Victoria principal's character. And it's, it's, it just gives me the willies. It's so creepy. Uh, and, uh, you know that kind of stuff uh stands out for me but it, to me this is this is not a film that's aged terribly well compared okay. to some of its contemporaries now this whole like uh movement of disaster movies
0: that were so popular in the 70s kind of came to an end for the airport movies i mentioned airplane was like the nail in the coffin of that particular uh, subgenre of the disaster movies, but you saw When Time Ran Out, which was a big bomb from 1980, starring Paul Newman. I've never seen it. What, what did you make of it, Stephen?
1: Yeah, I don't want to spend a lot of time on When Time Ran Out, but it's one of those films I'm always curious about. I mean, I love Paul Newman. I'll watch him in anything, and clearly I've not watched him in this yet. Uh, and it's basically, uh, this time it's a volcano, and it's set on a South Sea island where there's a big splashy resort that's having its, of course, it's having its grand opening. Uh, they always seem to be able to have these disasters timed out well with things opening for the first time or whatever. And, uh, and of course the volcano erupts in the middle of this grand opening. There was an oil drilling, um, uh, operation that Paul Newman's in charge of that goes horribly awry because of the volcano. And, uh, James Franciscus, uh, runs the resort and refuses to evacuate it. Uh, which of course we all know what happens when, when that, there's always that one guy who's stubborn and refuses to believe that anything bad can happen. And, and it does of course, but it's, you know, the, the joke. I'm sure when it came out in 1980, was uh, the film should have been called "When Money Ran Out" because uh, it the it's it's a cheap looking film. It looks like a TV movie, and it's got people like Red Buttons and Ernest Borgnine in a secondary plot. It it really does feel like a, like a Love Boat uh, episode set around a volcano. The special effects look pretty cheap. And then it ends with this big finale where they're trying to get across a bridge over a lava river and the bridge is falling apart. And it's so obviously on a soundstage that it's, it hurts and, uh, I yeah you know, I saw it out of curiosity. I used to see this on the video store shelves on VHS years and years ago, and and wondered I wonder if that lo- is as bad as it looks. And the answer is yes, <laughs> it's as bad as it
0: looks. <laughs> this is often what we find on this podcast and we, is that that some some things
1: just don't really hold up. But there we we're still our curiosity carries us through. Well, this this was an opportunity to finally knuckle down and see it. I had to rent it on uh, Apple, uh, and uh, you know I'm glad I finally checked that one off my list. But it's it yeah, it, it definitely lived up to what my uh, premonition was. So before we end our
0: look at disaster movies on this episode of Lens Mirrors, um, we should talk about one that actually is pretty great. And it's much newer. Uh, Greenland from 2020, directed by Rick Roman Waugh. Uh, and it's on Amazon. And you know, it's the presence of Gerard Butler, or Jetty, as I like to call him, in, in feature films these days, usually a sign of a certain kind of popcorn escapism. Some of them are some of his movies are terrible. Let's face it. But this is a pretty gripping disaster picture that uh, that does really well. And I I think partly it's because it's not so much about the broad, you know, it's not so much the ensemble cast. It's it's focused on one particular family. Jerry plays John Garrity. He's reached that point in his career where like. You know, like Connery and Schwarzenegger before him, he doesn't necessarily need to explain his being a foreigner living in America. He goes full Scott on this one. <laughs> well, he's um, an engineer. So yeah, there you go. There you go. Uh, he's on the outs with his wife, Allison, played by Marina Baccarin, who is great. But even though I don't believe him as a couple at all, and they're trying to make it work. And then they hear about a comet that's passing the Earth parts of which might splash down harmlessly near Bermuda, they say. (laughs) Uh, But if it's so harmless, why are jets in the sky and military vehicles on the highways? And then Tampa, Florida gets taken out. So things are getting bad. Now the Garrities, including son Nathan, played by Roger Dale Floyd, who is diabetic, of course that's going to come up later, um, get notification that they've been chosen to board an exclusive evacuation plane, but only if they can get there to the airfield in one piece. And the tension is strung pretty impressively about this around this basic scenario starting with the responses of of this family's friends and neighbors who know that they this particular family have been spared the coming apocalypse but they don't know why and uh yeah and i I really I really quite enjoyed the where it goes it's it's uh some of the plotting issues are a little ropey but uh overall you know the cinematography the editing and uh, this is big b movie stuff big action set pieces and the regular threat of fiery destruction from the skies. Uh, I, I like Green. I like Greenland quite a lot, and especially, <laughs> I won't say why it is it's called Greenland, but it becomes pretty clear by the third act.
1: Yeah, I liked it a lot too. Uh, Ger- Gerard Butler carries a lot of goodwill with me, even though he's been in some. Truly awful films He's still an appealing actor He's got a great personality uh, You know And I, he's just a guy I want to see in good movies Not in bad ones And so here He gets a chance To be in something good And of course He uh, he nails it He's very good As uh, as John Garrity And and uh, Marina Baccarina Of course I was a fan Of Firefly And uh-huh. she was great in that So it's great to see her here Playing the wife You're right There is a lot of friction Between them And it doesn't feel like The marriage is working But it isn't So that's sort of One of the plot points I suppose and uh, I, I, it was written by uh, Chris Sparling, who wrote a very good thriller called Buried, and uh, he he's really does well at focusing on the character stuff in a way that some of those films like Airport and Earthquake and so on really don't uh, do terribly well. Here they really double down on the character and the, the relationship stuff in a way that uh, feels realistic and doesn't feel out of balance with the stuff that's happening around them.
0: that brings us to the end it's the end Stephen (laughs) of our apocalyptic disaster movie episode of Lends Me Your Ears many many thanks to everyone who happened to listen either on the podcast or uh, at at CKDU we we show up on the on the airwaves every um, second Tuesday at five o'clock on CKDU. Also, thanks to CKDU for the studio facilities, uh, and uh, and yeah, and for airing the show. Um, and uh, we, if you want to reach out to us, we are uh, happy to hear from you. Um, we've got a, a Facebook page. We're also on Twitter uh, as lensmeyourears Me Your Ears. And, and Stephen, you're also on Twitter, aren't you? At ns underscore s c o o k e. And so am I. I'm the at under my. Um, my my film blog title flaw in the iris also many thanks to the producers of this episode and our show that the village soundcast network and uh, we'll be talking about movies disastrous or otherwise very soon
1: once again keep watching the skies